All right, so this morning uh, we're going to start the book of Mark. Last week, uh, Patrick gave us a wonderful introduction to the book of Mark. Um, and so we're going to jump into the first 13 verses in chapter 1 of Mark this morning. Uh, just by way of housekeeping, uh, a lot of what I'm going to say this morning uh, comes from Hendrickson's commentary on Mark. Um, spent a lot of time in there studying and uh, a lot of time in the Word preparing for this. And uh, just want to put that disclaimer out there. Um, and so, as by way of introduction, I wanted to take note of a couple of things um, in regards to the Gospels uh, in general. Um, Firstly, each one of the Gospels, I don't know if you've paid attention to this, starts differently. Um, they're, they're four different stories. Uh, Matthew begins his Gospel with a very detailed account of the ancestry, the conception, the birth, and the naming of Christ. Luke starts out with the birth of John the Baptist, is where he begins. John, if you remember, starts out showing how Christ is the Word how He has existed for all eternity. He is the God who became incarnate, not man who became God. So each one of these accounts has a goal and a purpose in its message. There is an intent behind the reasons why each author starts the way they do differently. So we're going to look this morning at how does Mark begin... It says, the beginning... The Gospel of Jesus of Nazareth, right? Now, the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is what Mark says there in verse 1. Mark begins his Gospel when Jesus is transitioning from being the son of the carpenter, Jesus of Nazareth, to Jesus the Messiah. So all throughout the Gospel of Mark, we're going to see that Mark is portraying Jesus not as just a man, but as this conquering, warring, energetic, fast-acting, conquering king. And we're going to see this morning that he is a king that you must prepare to receive by confessing sins, repenting, and being baptized. That he's a king worthy of all worship and sacrifice. That he's a king worthy of forsaking everything for He's a king worthy of proclaiming and drawing other people to. We're going to see that this is all about the king. It's all about who he is, what he's done, and especially your relationship to that king, to him. So if somebody would please read chapter 1 of Mark, verses 1 through 8 for us this morning. saying, After me 
becomes one who is mightier than I. The strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Thank you, Brandon. Um, so a couple of contextual uh, things I think is that are important. These first eight verses here span a period of about six months, um, right around probably the end of A.D. 26. Um, so the, the, kind of this John's ministry before Christ probably spanned about six months. Um, and the place that they're at, they're obviously, as we have seen here, in the wilderness of Judea, um, right along the Jordan River. Um, so I kind of want to hit this one verse at a time and, and say a few things uh, uh, in summary about each one of these verses. Um, first thing I want us to see is that in verse 1, um, is that the good news about Jesus Christ, the Son of God, began with John the Baptist, is what verse 1 is trying to tell us. Uh, historically, a king when he's coming into a new region, is preceded by a herald. John is that herald. A herald usually performs two functions. He prepares the way for the king, and he proclaims the king's coming. The job of the herald is to remove all hindrances and obstacles to the king's arrival, and to make sure everyone knows and is prepared to receive him. Now, obviously, this is a little bit different. There is a physical aspect to this, but here in Mark, this is more of a spiritual task that Mark is, or that John is undertaking in Mark. John is to prepare the hearts and minds of the people to receive the Messiah. He's to make straight the crooked area, areas of the lives that the people have in regards to their disobedience to God's holy will is to remove all of the obstacles on the path to their heart, like the self-righteousness that we'll see as we read the Pharisees struggled with in their own lives. So because of John's ministry, because of his heralding ministry, the people of Judea know the time the Messiah is at hand. They know he's coming. And they know how to receive him through repentance and faith. Let's jump down to verses 2 and 3, and we'll see that John is fulfilling his specifically prophesied ministry as Christ's herald in two different ways. First, he's fulfilling this prophecy generally. Um, Would somebody look up Malachi chapter 3, verses 1? Uh, another one, look up Malachi 4, 5, and then an additional Isaiah 40, verse 3. Yeah, Malachi 3, 1, Malachi 4, 5, Isaiah 40, verse 3. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant, in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. Lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. And the last? 
That was the Malachi 4, right? Yeah. Anybody have Isaiah 40, verse 3? So generally, in these three passages, we know somebody's going to come in the spirit of Elijah and prepare the way of the Lord. He's going to herald His coming. But specifically, would somebody grab uh, Luke 1, 15-17? We're going to see who this person actually is. We know generally who He is from those three passages. Now we're going to know specifically through this prophetic encounter between Zechariah and the angel in Luke 1, 15-17. Somebody read that. So generally we know there's going to be a herald, and specifically we know it's John, um, through all of these prophetic passages. Um, and let's jump down to verse 4. Uh, we're going to see that in his preaching, John urged the people to undergo a basic spiritual change that their sins might be forgiven. And that basic spiritual change is repentance and faith. Hearing the proclamation of the Word of God, being convicted of that Word, confessing your sin, repenting and trusting in Christ's work on your behalf. Repentance and faith. Acknowledging in every way you are unworthy of God's love, grace, and forgiveness. Turning from sin and turning to Christ. John is simply preaching repentance and faith. It's not a difficult message, it's a clear message. For people to turn from sin and turn to Christ. And he was baptizing as a sign and seal, the verse says, of the forgiveness of, of the people that they were receiving through that repentance. So, John's baptism was indicating to the people and to the public, both Jew and Gentile, that there was a necessity for the removal of sin for each person. Just like now, the washing of the baptism symbolized that their sin had been washed away, that it had been forgiven. But this baptism was a problem for some, especially some of the Jews. It was a stumbling block to them that they would think that they would need to repent and be baptized. They saw Gentiles get baptized all the time. This was a fundamental part of when someone converts to Judaism. They undergo this outward rite of baptism. They show that they had had this fundamental transformation. The Gentiles did this. The Jews did not. But for John to proclaim to the Jews that they also needed this outward rite of baptism, this to proclaim this change was offensive to them. As I said, especially for the Pharisees. They were the most spiritually clean among the Jews. And this is one of the many reasons why the Pharisees rejected Christ so harshly. Because they, they did not view themselves as needing to be cleansed. Any questions or thoughts thus far?
Let's look down at verse 7. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you. Oh, I'm sorry, that's verse 8. Baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So, verse 7, um, there's two things I kind of want to point out here. Um, first, as I said a moment ago, um, Many of the Jews, especially the Pharisees, had a very big problem with this idea of them needing to repent and be baptized, that they needed to confess sin. As we've said over the last couple of weeks, and Patrick said last week in his sermon, they knew a false truth that they thought was true. And it led them down the path to reject Christ. Now the second thing I want to point out um, is that um, John the Baptist and Mark were both very humble men. They both go to very extreme lengths to give no attention to themselves, but instead point to Christ. As we'll see, and I'm hoping that you all have sat down and at least read Mark all the way through this week, um, but I don't know if you noticed or not, but Mark never mentions himself by name in the entire book. He's an incredibly humble man. And thinking about John... This, this part of verse 7 here. You find it. Uh, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. There were, uh, in ancient Jewish tradition, there was one distinctive difference between a disciple and a slave. A disciple was willing to do anything for his master except untie his sandals. A slave was willing to do anything the master required, including untying his sandals. So we have a disciple, he's got an exclusion, we have a slave, will do anything, and then we've got John, who felt completely unfit and unworthy even to render the service of untying his master's sandal straps. An incredibly humble man focused on the ministry of Christ, pointing people to Him. Let's look down at verse 8. I have baptized you with water, but He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. John was very clear to show that he himself was unable to supply what the people truly needed. John proclaimed that he baptized with water, but one coming after him would baptize with the Holy Spirit. So again, John is a herald. He's pointing to Christ. He's very clearly exalting Christ's superiority, his superior majesty, his superior activity over his own here in this verse. And he's doing this because if John's not careful, he's preaching this message of baptism and repentance. He's preaching that the Messiah is coming. If he's not careful to draw a clear line of distinction, people may begin to think that He is the Messiah, that He is the coming Christ, and He doesn't want that to happen. He's simply trying to show that there is a qualitative difference between the infinite and the finite, between the internal and the temporal, between the original light that the sun emits and the light that's reflected on the moon. And the second thing I think that's important that we pick up here is the distinction of uh, baptized with the Holy Spirit. Um, and I, I want to point out, I think that's really referring to two different things. Um, one is 
the baptism with the Holy Spirit that we receive uh, when we repent and believe in Jesus Christ. We receive His power. We receive the gifts that He gives us. But I think here also, it's historically looking forward to the outpouring of the Spirit at Pentecost. And so I think we should keep those two things in mind as we read uh, through this first section of Mark. So we looked a little bit at John's ministry here. We skipped a few verses. Um, That was kind of a culmination of what he did. And I want to focus on verses 5 and 6 here and look at the response uh, to John's ministry. In verse 5, we see that multitudes of people from all of Judea were constantly going out to hear John during his ministry. And many of those people who came out, and when they heard John's preaching, repented and were baptized in the Jordan River. These are no small crowds, I want to be clear. These are thousands upon thousands of people coming out to hear John preaching repentance and faith over the six months leading up to Jesus coming to the Jordan. He was not a hermit who wandered in a secluded wilderness all by himself. He traveled all over Judea along the Jordan River proclaiming this truth of baptism and repentance. And even after the baptism of Christ, he still continued to preach repentance to the Jews and to the Gentiles. John had fulfilled his ministry coming up to the point of his baptism. He had proclaimed and he had prepared the way for the Lord. He had been a good herald. And through that ministry, many thousands of people were ready to receive the message of Christ. And then in verse 6, uh, this portion that focuses on his attire and, and, his, and his food, um, this simple way of life, along with his earnestness and directness, I think all contributed to his favorable result um, of preaching repentance and baptism. Um, I think it's important for us to understand that John had one focus in his life. I think that's why this verse is here for us. He was taking faithful forward steps of obedience, as we've said from up here time and time again, faithful forward steps. He was just being faithful, he was being obedient, he was moving forward. Um, His attire was simply logical. He was in the desert along the Jordan. It needed to be economical, it needed to be durable, functional, not fancy, one outfit for all occasions. I need to go clean up my closet. Um, his diet was simple. He didn't have a job. He didn't earn money. He ate was avail- what was available. But I also think that this should not be considered a summary of his diet. He only ate locusts and honey. I don't think that that's what this is saying. Um, it's not a restriction. They were just easy to come by. Locusts and honey were plethora. There was a plethora of locusts and honey in the desert. It was easy to come by. He more than likely ate other things. It's just the simple idea that he was living a simple life and he was protesting uh, self-indulgence and all selfishness. He didn't live carelessly or he didn't live with false security and anything other than what the Lord would provide for him in the desert. Everything else to John was meaningless. He was very focused on proclaiming the Lord's coming. 
Any comments or questions on verses 1 through 8? All right, will somebody read verses 9 through 11 for us? 9 through 11. So here Jesus approaches John and inaugurates his ministry by asking John to baptize him in the Jordan. So I have a question. Since Jesus was sinless and the water of baptism symbolized the necessity of the removal of filth or sin, how then was it possible for the sinless one to submit to baptism? Why did he do this? You see elsewhere in the, in the Gospels that Christ said it's necessary. Uh, so the next question is then, why, why? necessary? Yeah. And the, both questions are, are together. Mm-hmm. And so it's that he might identify with our sin, not as a sinner, but as a bore of our sin. Yes. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. He obviously it wasn't an admission of guilt on Christ's part. He wasn't admitting that he was a sinner. But instead it was a resolution. It was a promise that he himself was going to take on the guilt for them, those whom he was going to die for. If somebody would look up Isaiah 53 verse 6. And if someone else would look up 2 Corinthians 5.21, Isaiah 53.6, 2 Corinthians 5.21. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of his all. For our sake. Amen. He did have sin, our sin. It was going to be laid upon him. So I think it the fact that he did this was showing that he was voluntarily self surrendering to the task of laying down his life for his sheep. And it's an example for us in our baptism. We voluntarily self surrender our lives to Christ when He leads us to Him. And we show that through baptism. So, uh, Let's look at verse 10. Uh, when He came up out of the water, immediately He saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on Him like a dove. So when Christ had been baptized, the heavens opened up and the Spirit descended upon Him. Um, as we said last week, there's one word that Mark likes to use all through his Gospel. Anybody remember what that word was? Immediately. Immediately. This is our first immediately that we see in Mark. And while the focus is on the timeliness and the swiftness here, 
of the baptism when the Holy Spirit comes. I don't think that's the only focus. Um, I think in this instance, it's showing us the sureness or the inevitability of God's sovereign plan since the beginning of time. This is a really significant moment in eternity, what's happening here. This is the immediate, historical, bodily beginning of the fulfillment of the second part of the prophecy of Genesis 3.15. Right here. Genesis 3.15 says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. It's important to remember over the next three years of Jesus' ministry, there's going to be a lot of bruising going on. This is the beginning of the end for Satan. A quick question here to maybe spark some discussion. When thinking about Jesus, thinking He is divine, so there's therefore not a need... Of the anoint- is there therefore not a need of the anointing of the Holy Spirit to qualify him for the carrying out of the task given to him by the Father? So he is divine. So what's going on here with the anointing of the Spirit? Why does this need to happen? Yes, they all have a, they're all equal, but they're all different. They're all persons with a task to perform, yes. Well, I might also add that uh, the people who knew him said, you're, you're, you're that boy from Nazareth. Why are you doing all this for him? So it's, it's, it's to identify him, uh, not just simply to, to, to make, make it personal. Yes. Yes, yes. Yeah, he had, though he was divine, in the incarnation something happened. He received a human nature. And that human nature was could be strengthened. It, it was capable of being strengthened by the work of the Spirit, by being baptized by the Spirit. And the incarnation is also very important and the baptism signified that he was God incarnate because being incarnate meant that he could be both divine and human mediator 
and function as prophet, priest, and king on our behalf on the cross. So, yes. Anything else about that? Questions? Yes. Yeah, we're going to get to verse 11. So, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, verse 11 here. Um, and a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. So, yes, very much a public proclamation of the Father um, to the Son. This section right here, Jesus' baptism is one of, not the only, but one of the most clear examples of the Trinity in all of Scripture. Um, so we've got here, we've got the Father's recognition and approval of the Son to do His eternal will, paying the penalty for sin. <clears throat> we've got... Sorry, lost. We've got the um, Son's obedience and submission to the Father's eternal plan. And then we've got the Spirit's glorifying and enabling power coming onto the Son. I think it's also important to note that the Father's approval here is not a reluctant approval. And Christ's willingness to do this for us, to take on the sin of the world, did not diminish the Father's love for the Son. Quite the opposite, it pleased God to crush Him. Isaiah 53.10 tells us as such. Uh, I'm going to read you a quote here out of uh, the commentary I was using to study about these three verses. It was it was really powerful, and I couldn't think of any better way to say it. So I just want to read you a couple sentences here. Uh, the, in regards to these three sentences about the baptism of Jesus, he says, These three verses are filled with great comfort, not only for the Son and for John, but for every child of God. For it indicates that not only does the Son love His followers enough to suffer the pangs of hell in their stead, but that also the Spirit fully cooperates by strengthening Him for this very task, and that the Father, instead of frowning upon the one who undertakes it, is so very pleased with Him that He must not rend asunder the very heavens, that that His voice of delightful approval may be heard on earth." All three are equally interested in our salvation, and all three are one. The Father has such great delight in the Son's task that He literally pulls open the heavens and declares His approval of what Jesus is fixing to do. Any other comments or questions on this part on Jesus' baptism? You know me, I can't get away from the baptism thing here. Uh, the Presbyterians like to make a big deal about, well, he just, just coming, stepping up out of the water. Well, why did he have to step in? Did they had a judge of water and could sprinkle it. <laughs> he, he actually went down into the water, yeah. and then he had to come up out of the water. Yeah. But there's much more here, too, that we see here, and that is the concept of there's a covenantal relationship between God the Father and God the Son being expressed here. And we should not get away from that simply because we don't to identify with our Presbyterian brothers. There is a covenant relationship in baptism. And we, when we enter into the baptismal waters, we are into a covenant relationship with our Father. 
Yes. Yes. Thank you, Woody. So this would be right at the end of the six... John's probably been preaching for about six months now. Repentance and faith in that area. No. Yeah, no. Yeah, it's been going on for quite a while. Mm, yes. Yeah. How many times has a voice come from heaven? Transfiguration. This is not a common occurrence that happens all the time. Yeah, not many times. Usually it's just to a prophet. Um, not it's not usually a public. I would assume that several people probably heard that. I would assume so. No reason to believe that they didn't. What's that? Happened to Reformed Baptist Service. What's that? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Speculation, yes. Yeah. I would agree. So I'm trying to put more personal stuff into it, but the voice isn't saying, hey, everybody, this is my son. You know, he's not telling, you know, he's saying, you are my beloved son, and I am with you. He's not saying, hey, y'all, this is my son. You know what I'm saying? Like, there's, there's, there's specific verbiage that's speaking in Christ. Yeah. Uh, and... You know, being a son, uh, one of the last things my father said to me was that he was proud of me. This is a relation. This is a relationship. This is not yeah. just uh, a declaration. Yeah, this is the covenant. What he was just talking about. I mean, there, there's something very significant happening here between the father and the son. And, and in line with what he was just saying too, the fact that still Christ is a man, and, and this is a revelation to Christ that He is who. Uh, this person, uh, not that he doubted, don't misunderstand me, but that this is verification even to him, uh, or, or authentication, shall we say, to him, such that whenever he goes out, uh, when, when he's in, in the trial, they say, are you the son of God? Mm-hmm. You said so. Yeah. He knew, he knows now. Yeah. Beyond any shadow. And I think if you look at Matthew and John, or Matthew and Luke, you're probably going to get the idea that, I mean, John knew when Jesus was walking up to him what was what was fixing that. I mean, he knew Christ was the Messiah. And so I think you could assume through inference that the people around there were also understanding what was happening when the Lord spoke, the Father spoke from heaven. Um, so yes, definitely a covenant between Jesus and the Father, but also a reaffirmation of, this is no longer Jesus, only Jesus of Nazareth. This is Christ the Messiah. Yeah, yeah we don't get that language here. Behold the Lamb of God who comes to take the sin of the world uh, that we get in Matthew. So, Any other 
comments? Let's run through verses 12 and 13 here real quick. And if somebody would read that, please. All right, so our second immediately here, um, right after the baptism of Jesus, um, and he's driven out to a desolate, dangerous wilderness, some unknown distance from the Jordan. Um, Jesus is being sent by the Spirit into the wilderness for 40 days. He's going to go without food. He's going to be among the wild beasts. Let's see, I'm going to try to breeze through some of this. I know we're out of time, so... I think it's uh, important. You can. There's kind of two different views people take on this, but I think from Matthew and Luke, we can pretty much infer that the temptation of Christ takes place at the end of the 40 days, not during the entire 40 days. Um, and um, the fact that Jesus can be tempted is kind of a mystery. Um, we could probably spend the entire hour talking about how that works out. Um, it's really hard to make perfectly clear, uh, but I think we can make a few points. Um, first, that the temptation refers to Jesus' human nature, not His divine nature. James 1.3 says God cannot be tempted. So we know that in His divinity, um, Jesus is not tempted um, by the words of Satan, uh, but in His humanity He is. Um, it's kind of dangerous to start drawing lines like that, of distinction between the divine nature and the human nature. But sometimes we need to um, so that we can try to understand some of these great mysteries of the doctrine of the Incarnation. Um, so be careful with that. Um, see, uh, Hebrews 4.15 uh, reassures us that he was tempted, that the temptation was real. It wasn't a fake thing. Hebrews 4.15 says that he was tempted in every respect as we are, yet without sins. Um, this means that Jesus didn't fall into sin. Um, what it doesn't mean, though, is that he, the process involved in his temptation was exactly the same for us as it was for him psychologically. Um, Jesus and all post-fall believers, including us, experience the temptation of that voice, that whispering, that urging of Satan. However, there is a difference. Jesus didn't have a fallen sin nature. We do. Um, Christ was like the first Adam. He didn't have the lust of the flesh. He didn't have a fallen nature. But we do. James 1.14 says, Man is drawn away and enticed by his own evil desire coming within. Christ didn't have that evil desire from within like we do. That desire is passed down, as we've stated here many, many times, through the ordinary procreation, through men. Jesus was not a son of man. He was product of Mary and the Holy Spirit. He was not Joseph's. Joseph was not his biological father. Um, and then, let's see. <clears throat> and I would just also, I guess, at the end here, point out um, 
that this is the beginning of the battle that we described in Genesis 3.15. Satan knows, the demons know, Jesus knows, his followers know, all of creation knows the outcome of this battle. Um, Jesus had defeated his adversary at the end of the temptation, and the angels come and minister to him in many ways, speculation, probably spiritually, maybe physically, um, that we can't know. Um, so, in closing here, I would encourage you when you go home today, I was going to read it at the end here, but go read John chapter 10 um, in its entirety um, to get a kind of a glimpse of Christ's coming ministry um, after John had ushered in uh, the baptism of the Messiah. So go home, read John chapter 10. Let's pray.